Continuing with how can Christians say theirs is the only true religion, the text is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. And just make a mental note of that, that word right there. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, so it's a Trinitarian text. He doesn't just say God, it's Father God, God the Father. And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard his voice, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention. That's interesting. You will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Interesting phrase. Knowing this first of all. What do you have to know first of all? What's the most important thing? Knowing this first of all. That no prophecy, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So I, this morning, I get up and I I say to you, you know, I really think, just before the service, I think the Lord spoke to me. And then I'm always pretty careful to say, you, you discern that. Because that's my interpretation of that event. Okay? I'm not claiming apostolic authority or any such thing. I think God spoke to me. You judge. Peter says, that's not what we have here. It's not what we have here. This is different. This isn't just someone's idea, someone's mystical experience, someone's philosophy of life. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. Spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. And so we, we have this book. We open it now. We study it. God's words. Nouns, verbs, adjectives, sentences, paragraphs. God's words. Our Creator's words. Makes this a very sacred moment. We don't want to handle your words lightly or tritely. They're they're a lamp that shines in the darkness of our hearts and the darkness of this world. 
Help us to cherish them more. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we considered the rather surprising approach that Peter took in validating the unique power and authority of the gospel. You know, he says at the beginning of the book that your gospel has to be the same as mine. It's very narrow. This is the gospel. There's nothing else. It can't be changed. And so, in validating the gospel message, it's just surprising what Peter didn't do. That he didn't draw on his own inward personal experience of transformation or, or the meeting of his inward needs or inward healings or freedom And that was kind of surprising because Peter, of all people, he sure had a great story to tell. So now that we've considered the approach Peter didn't take, we're going to start today to look at what he does say, how he validates the gospel message that he was proclaiming. Point number one, long point. The birth of the Christian faith was not in the second-hand report of someone else. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the deity, majesty, and glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I get that in verses 16 and 17. I, I showed you this word, for we did not follow, talk about that in a minute, cleverly devised, cleverly devised. Designed to, to, um, to be loved, appreciated, accepted, compelling. You, you craft the message in such a way. You do your market research. You figure out what it is that this demographic is going to want to hear. And, and you put the message, craft it. That's what advertisers do. So we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. That's, that's the big word there. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, and his voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That idea, we were eyewitnesses. We didn't follow Cleverly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses. So, so the Christian faith is never presented as being produced in just ideas or concepts, a philosophy, a code of ethics or morality. I mean, all of those things will have their place, but they're the fruits of the faith. They're not the foundation for the faith. They're not the birthplace of the faith. That word follow is really important. We didn't follow So the life of Christ is not the result. It doesn't follow after any philosophic system or any ethical system. We're not basing it on that. We're not following after something else. There are solid events, and the the faith originates in those events. And what's just as important to Peter... He says, we, the apostles, were 
eyewitnesses to those events. This really rings true with what all the apostles said. I was looking at 1 John. See if you see an emphasis in these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. That's interesting. Eh? I mean, if I tell you I see something, why would I have to tell you I see it with my eyes? How else do you, how else do you see things? That's his way of saying this is, this is not some inner mystic sight, some, some spiritual vision that was granted. These physical eyes saw these things the way you would see uh, a movie, the way you see me, the way you see this desk, the way you see things, the same way. Nothing magical. We saw with our, with our eyes. And right after saying that, which we have looked upon, which is the same thing again, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest. Are you getting the theme here? We have seen it. Testify, proclaim to you eternal life which the Father was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Peter and John are saying the same thing. We, we, we don't come proclaiming our ideas. And that's not what we're doing here at Cedarview either. You don't have to listen to me. We're not describing something we found on some parchments in a cave Peter would say. We're not following some teaching on how to find a richer life. We were, we were with Jesus. We, we saw him crucified. We talked to him after he had been raised from the dead. We, we know what he said about himself, about who he was, why he came. We witnessed all of this, he says. And then Peter recalls one particular time. That's what our text is really about. One particular event in the life of Jesus of which he says he was a witness. It's that 17 and 18. Have I got the right? Yeah, there. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. So there was a time when, when he received honor and glory from God the Father. And there was a time when this voice was heard. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That voice was heard a couple of times. When he received honor and glory from the Father, that surely wasn't the baby born in Bethlehem, where no place to lay his head, as Jesus said. Peter specifically mentions the time that he, along with James and John, says there was, there was a time when we were with Jesus on the mountain. And I'm not sure we give that event maybe the weight of importance that it has in the Scriptures. It's covered three times in the Gospels. It's also predicted in the book of Isaiah 700 years before it happened. So look at this account. Jesus on the Mount. It's in Luke. I had to slice up some verses so the text isn't too long. 
So 28 to 31 and then verse 35. Luke has this account. About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up in the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face, what does this mean? Altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Let me ask you something. Had Peter, James, or John ever seen Moses or Elijah? It's not a trick question. Not a chance. How how do they know? Now, it could be Jesus told them, but the text doesn't say that. How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? And I just, my theory, can't prove it, it's just my, my theory, is that this is the question I get asked all the time. Um, we miscarried a baby, Pastor Don. How, how will we know each other in the new creation? It's a hard question, isn't it? And my answer to that, my answer to that is, is that somehow recognition is different in the new creation than it is now. Now, the, now you, you need to meet somebody, you need to know somebody, you find out about them. But something's going to happen. The Bible says we shall, we shall know him as we are known. I think there'll be a way of, of instantly knowing each other in eternity that doesn't exist on this earth. That's what I believe. And they just, they just look and they see, oh, it's, it's Moses. It's Elijah. What I'm saying is, there won't be any strangers in the new creation. It'll be what makes it infinitely richer than life on this earth. You don't even know everybody in this room. But I digress. Moses and Elijah, they meet and they're talking. And they spoke of his departure, verse 31. And then these strange words, his, when you think of somebody's departure, do you think about accomplishing something? Spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. There's that redemptive emphasis, to accomplish at Jerusalem. And a voice came out of the cloud. Everybody heard it and knew what it said, put quotation marks around it because they could understand it. This is my son, my chosen one. And then this. Listen to him. Apparently, this was a very decisive event in the lives of these three apostles. Think. Peter could have mentioned any of a great number of wonderful events he had witnessed. Peter could have said, I know this is true because we saw his ascension. He doesn't talk about the ascension. He could have said, this is what I would have done. We know this is true, God's unique plan, because we saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. He doesn't talk about that. Seems like an oversight. He 
he could have talked about any number of miracles that he had participated in. You don't think, you don't think Jesus is unique? We, we fed, we fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fishes. Why did he choose this event, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain? Let me, let me try and put this whole chapter together like this quickly. In the very first verse of chapter 1, Peter feels no shame, no hesitation at all to tell people that their faith must be the faith of the apostles. He says that right in the very first verse. Any view of Jesus that reached any conclusion short of him being our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 1-1, Peter says you reject it. Just reject it out of hand. Now, later on in verse 11 of chapter 1, Peter's going to remind them about the importance of making certain of their entrance into the eternal kingdom, underline, verse 11. Entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, people, people could well ask the question, Peter, wh- what do you know about who Jesus really was and what gives you the right to talk with such certainty about this kingdom Jesus has? It's a fair question. Lots of people have teachings. There are books all over the place with opinions about God and about different realms and regions and how we can get there. Those claims aren't unique to the Christian faith. Most religions have them. Why should we give particular attention to the message of the apostles? And to all those questions, Peter has an answer. Peter says, I was was there on the mountain, and what I saw, I saw the splendor and the majesty of who Jesus was. You didn't see that in the ascension. I know about the meaning of his death. That conversation with Moses and Elijah wasn't just small talk. They were talking about Jesus' death and all that he would accomplish for mankind in Jerusalem. And then, and then Peter says, then there's something else. Something very important happened. While we were up there on that mountain, we looked at Jesus, glowing, bright, altered, his appearance so transformed. And then, and then God spoke up on that mountain. I'm not just giving you my assessment of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. God spoke. I heard the voice myself, Peter would say. I heard the words. You have to endorse Jesus Christ as God the Son and trust in him. Why? Well, not because I say so. God endorsed his Son. God gave him this place of centrality. Father God backed up everything Jesus said. That's how I know this is true. That's why Jesus is different. That's why your faith must be my faith. It's not me telling you. God says so. God the Father said, put your faith in my son and listen to him. God says so. Peter says, I heard it. If I'm the only one telling you that Jesus is God the Son and he will come and rule and reign in his mighty kingdom, if I'm the only one telling you that, go home and watch something on Netflix. But if God says so, 
if God says you need to listen to Christ, then you need to listen to Christ. God didn't say this about Muhammad or anybody else. He said it about his son. And so our faith rests not on some second-hand account of religious seekers from all over the planet with all sorts of ideas, but on eyewitness testimony of God's endorsement of his son. There's something else. If you're listening carefully, there's another question that ought to be rolling around in the back of your head right now. If it isn't, let me put it there. Well, Pastor Don, that's all well and good that Peter was an eyewitness to all those events. But I wasn't. I wasn't there. I wasn't an eyewitness. So, so how can I be sure you're reading these words out of this old book? How can I be sure that what Peter says is accurate? How, how can I be sure that the book I hold in my hand, the one we carry to church in one form or another, in 2019, how can, I, how can I know that that's a faithful rendition of what Peter actually said and saw so many years ago? That's the issue Peter wants to address. Peter wants to move beyond his own time frame to yours and to mine. Point number two. The scriptures are not a collection of musings and contemplations of religious thinkers. The scriptures are the revelation of the Spirit of God himself. I get that in 19 to 21. And, and we have something. This doesn't seem possible, does it? We have something more sure? Are you kidding me? Which, which would you prefer? Which would, which would um, awaken your trust? If I stand here and I start reading from the New Testament... And so here's God's word, and I ask you to believe it. Okay, that's option A. Here's option B. While we're sitting here this morning at, at 10.52, suddenly the sanctuary starts to shake a little bit, okay? Just a little bit. And everybody's looking up because you're afraid. There's a big girders up there, and I'm sitting under one of them. And, and as it starts to shake, then, then the ceiling just lifts up, okay? And a bright light shines down. And it's not one of the tricks that the sound room plays. The ceiling lifts up and moves. Bright light shines down, and you hear a voice saying, Everything you're hearing about me in this place is true. Which would you find more compelling? Me reading from the New Testament. Or the ceiling lifting off the building, bright light like we've never seen, and an audible voice that shakes the foundations, telling us to believe that this is true. Now, the reason I did that is because that's what Peter's doing. He's saying, we, we were up there on the mountain. We saw Jesus absolutely transformed. We couldn't even look at him. And then we heard this voice. We all heard it. And Peter says, but, 19, look at your book. And, and we have something more sure. Are you kidding me? 
prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, you have to know this before you know anything else. Whatever you hear about the Christian faith, this is where you have to start. Well, you start with Jesus and his death on the cross. Yeah, but how do you know about that? You, 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 you get it here. What about the second coming? You get it here. What about the resurrection? Well, you get it here. So, what's the first thing you have to know? Knowing this, first of all, that, that no prophecy of the Scriptures comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm running out of time. Got to go through these things quickly. So, point number A, under two. Peter says, we, notice how he includes himself right there, the church, Christians, himself, the church to whom he writes. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, 19. Obviously, he doesn't mean that the Scriptures are more true now than they were before. doesn't mean that. I think what Peter means is we have the advantage of seeing the fulfillment of other passages of Scripture written long ago. I think that's what he means when he says more sure. Peter mentions the greatest example of this when he, when he talks of the incarnation and the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The, the very detail of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, they were spelled out hundreds of years before. Isaiah never saw that. Ezekiel never saw that. Jeremiah never saw it. You see the fulfillment of it. Evidence is mounting, growing. All the details, where Christ would be born, what he would do, how he would die, where he would be buried, the resurrection from the dead, all those things were predicted earlier, but the people who lived back then didn't see those events take place. They had the prophetic word only. We have the prophetic word made more sure because we've seen its fulfillment. The second thing, Peter says the Bible you hold in your hands is not like any other book in the world. There are a lot of good books. But Peter says God was God. Pretend you haven't heard this a million times. The invisible God, he was involved in the words you have recorded in this book. So when we say it's inspired, we, we don't mean what most people mean. We don't mean it's inspiring. There are a lot of inspiring books. Inspiring means the effect they have on us as we read them. The inspiration we're talking about in this book isn't the feeling I have when I read it. It's the creation of the text itself.
the idea, when Peter says in 20 and 21, we're almost done. Knowing this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the idea Peter wants to get across is this. It's, it's a striking one. He's just written about the voice they heard on the mountain. We, we heard. We heard the voice of the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Okay? Peter says, God spoke up there and we heard the words. And the point he wants to make here is God didn't just speak up there on the mountain. He spoke here. He speaks here. These are his words. God is a speaking God now. He still speaks. It's the same God. He communicates. Every other book in the world is the product of human minds, human thoughts. Some are very good. Peter says that the Bible, the Bible didn't have its origin in the mind or will of the person. The personality of the person is involved in the writing as the Holy Spirit guides. But the Spirit is the initiator, not the person. So this is not a book of Peter's opinion or Paul's opinion or John's ideas about Jesus. These men, says Peter, were only responding to the Spirit of God when they wrote. Peter actually says they were born along in the old King James, moved along, carried by the Spirit of God. Verse 21. See. In light of those first two ideas, Peter has this exhortation, this exhortation to, to pay attention. In verse 19, Last text. You will do well. You, you, you will do well to pay attention. That's what the Spirit of God says. Peter already said he was going to remind them of things they already knew. He said that but they were in danger of neglecting it. He says, I, I need to remind you because when you know something, it can cool. The weight of it can cool in your mind and in your heart. And so I'm wrapping up now with the single most important truth you will ever hear before you leave this earth. Are you all listening? The single most important truth you will ever hear before you leave this earth. Take heed, the old King James. Take heed to the scriptures. Every other spiritual problem stems from this one. There are other problems, but they have the same root. There, there, are, people, there are people in this room today who have never taken seriously the message of salvation, for starters. They've never made Jesus Christ, God the Son, Lord of their lives. But that's the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem is they have never taken heed. They've never paid attention. 
to what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. They might know what the Bible says. Maybe you were raised in a Baptist home or a Presbyterian home or a Methodist home or a Pentecostal home. You know the, you know the jig, you know the stuff, but you've never taken heed to it. You see the difference? They've heard the truth. They've never taken heed to it. There are people right now in this room who find their lives all gummed up with sin, habits, rebellion, coldness. They're stubborn in their resistance to the call of the Spirit to finally repent and forsake their sin. But that's the fruit of the problem. The root problem is they, they, they don't take heed to what text says they might know what it says they might hear what it says they might feel guilty about what it says they don't heed what it says there are people here today who are totally immersed in the things of the world they forget all the time that they're going to be dead within 20 years and it's all gone They have little time for church or the things of God. They get excited about success, but they remain unmoved by spiritual things, and that's because they never take heed to the teaching of the Scriptures about the nearness of eternity and the futility of earthly pursuits. They aren't enticed by precious and magnificent promises that Peter talks about in verse 4. They aren't frightened by the warnings of the Scriptures that they have to give account of their lives before Jesus. But in either case, the problem is the same. They aren't taking heed to what the text says. They know what it says. They aren't heeding what it says. And so church... We just need to be reminded, I think, all over again that the Word of God contains our our only hope in all areas of life. That's why Peter says, as he wraps up, he says it's it's like a light that shines in a dark place. And, And what he means by that is if you don't take heed, even if you know, if you don't take heed to the Scriptures, you live in self imposed darkness. No lights. You can't, you can't know the truth. You can't be freed from the darkness in you and the darkness around you. You can't do anything about it if you don't take heed to what the Bible says. Peter means that our own self-centered inclinations, they might get you a lot in other areas of life, but they will get you nowhere when it comes to spiritual truth. He means that the counsel of friends and experts will never bring the life of God into your situation. You will wander and fall repeatedly until you take heed to the Scriptures. Most of us know Psalm 119.105. If I started it, I'll bet most of you could finish it. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, and uh, you all knew it. What's the next verse? See, the problem is the next verse explains what that verse is all about. This is what we do. We find something that looks like a juicy promise. I like that one. (laughs) Stick it up on my fridge.
The verse that comes next defines how the Bible becomes a lamp and a light to my daily living. Verse 106 of the same psalm, right next verse. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous ways. You know what that is? That's, that's called taking heed. You can read this book till the cows come home and get not an ounce of light from it. Because the light comes. You will do well, Peter says. Everything about your life, everything about your life, you will do well to take heed. What, what is God talking to you about from his word? My goodness, if spiritual life came from what we knew wouldn't we all be saints like i mean real saints but it doesn't come from what you know it comes from taking heed to what you know it's probably not a better reminder for us all keep the lights on in your soul It's easy to see it in other people. It's always hardest to see it in ourselves. The areas of my life where I don't heed God's word as I should become blind to me the longer I don't heed the word. Do you know what I mean by that? You you lose the edge of seeing what God wants you to see about your own heart in the very act of not paying attention to what he says. All I can say is, church, we would all do well in Peter's words. Don't let, don't let too many days go by in succession without, without taking the book of James out or 1 John out. Find some place in your house where there's not another sound to be heard. Leave your cell phone in a different room. Kneel at a couch or a chair and read. And then just go about four verses and say... Is there anything here I need to take heed of? I know them. I can quote them. But is there anything here I need to take heed of? And here's what happens. You'll change your life by the Spirit of God. Let's pray.